Well, good morning and welcome and Merry Christmas. Thank you to the ladies for all their work done on the, uh, the stage here and in the foyer. Uh, looks great, very festive. We're uh, thankful for all, all, their, all their work. Uh, today is Communion Sunday, so if you would like to participate, there are communion cups in the foyer. I want to let you know the results of our harvest offering that we took last week and had been giving, had been giving throughout, the, throughout the month, as of the end of the month. Uh, $31,960.80 has come in. Amen. So a big thank you to all who, who were able to give uh, this, uh, this year for that offering. Uh, as we said before, that money is going to a, a, a farm project in Zambia. And our hope is that that money will be used, uh, the plan is for that money to be used in order to uh, purchase tractors and so we're, we're thankful uh, that they'll have a, a, good, a good start on, on funding for, uh, for the tractors. Uh, just a couple announcements uh, to let you know about next Sunday, December the 12th, uh, we will be um, having a children's Christmas program at 6 p.m. Uh, in this room and uh, come and support our, uh, our children's uh, ministry program and uh, the work that they've been putting in, uh, it's children and, and teenagers uh, will be participating uh, in that. They also have a practice uh, today uh, for the teenagers, and then next Saturday for uh, for everybody. Um, details have already gone out about that. Uh, and lastly, we want to invite you to an open house celebrating the marriage of Hal and Annie Hudson. That will happen on Saturday the the eleventh from noon to three in the fellowship hall. And they'll be in from uh, Colorado. And uh, they were married last month, and uh, we'll have a, some time to celebrate with them um, this coming Saturday. With that said, Pastor Chris is going to come and read our call to worship. Would you stand with me, please, as we open God's Word for our call to worship this morning. It comes from the book of Psalm, chapter 98, in the first three verses. It says this, O sing to the Lord a new song. For he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. This is the word of the Lord. Do you feel the world is broken? The last line of that first part says, do we wish to see it all made new? We do. Uh, maybe this morning you can relate a little bit with those lyrics. It seems to be that um, the hits have just kept coming as of late. Um, sorrow upon sorrow uh, around the world, uh, in our own state, in many of your families, in our faith family, the truth is that there is a lot of brokenness. There's a lot of sadness and grief. Whether that's related to sickness or disease, or that's related to to death or tragedy, loss or conflict, broken relationships, hurts and afflictions, whatever the case is, 
there seems to be a lot of it. As we look towards Christmas, we may ask ourselves, how can we have a Merry Christmas in the midst of such hardship and heartbreak? Have you ever wondered that? Have you ever looked around and said, man, there's so much, so much bad, and, and we run around and say, Merry Christmas to everybody, right? And we put up lights, and we smile, and we, we want to be happy. We understand what that question is really saying. It's really saying, how can I do parties and family gatherings? How can I enjoy meals and give gifts when, when I'm grieving, when I'm broken? It is a real question. It's a real problem that many face. Many of you may face it even this Christmas. But if we look a little closer at Christmas, we will see or we'll remember that Christmas was born into brokenness. In fact, the purpose of Christmas was to confront the brokenness of the world. From the last words from God in the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, until he spoke again in the New Testament, spanned some 400 years. 400 years of silence. 400 years of darkness. 400 years of, of wondering, where is God? And then the message came. The message came that the Messiah was here. We don't need to escape from Christmas because the world is not right. Actually, quite the opposite. We need Christmas because the world is not right. The book of Luke records four hymns or four songs sung or spoken in response to the announcement of or the birth of Jesus Christ. The first song is by Mary, then Zechariah, then the angels, and finally Simeon. In Alistair's Beg, in Alistair, in Alistair Begg's uh, short book about these hymns or these songs, he says this about the songs. Luke, the writer of the Gospel of Luke, doesn't give us these songs for them to wash over us. That's what a lot of Christmas music does, right? They wash over us, they're nostalgic, they come and they go. But actually, he gave us these songs for them to change us. These songs, writes Beg, helps us prepare for Christmas properly and celebrate Christmas joyfully. If you're having your copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 1. If you're using a pew Bible this morning, it's on page 856. 856. And if you are able, would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? Beginning in verse 46 of chapter 1, the Gospel of Luke. It says this, and Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. 
For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father, we ask for your help this morning. We pray that, that this song that we will look at now will encourage our heart as we face the, the days ahead, that it will prepare us, it will prepare us to, to celebrate Christmas joyfully. It's easy for us to get caught up in a lot of things this month. God, would you help us even to pause today? Would you use your word to help our hearts? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Verses 46 through 55 record what is called Mary's song, which is sometimes called the Magnificant. Uh, you see that in some of your Bibles there. Uh, the reason for that word is it's the Latin word referring to magnify, which Mary uses in verse 46, my soul magnifies the Lord. Uh, this is considered a great text in, in the scriptures of, of Mary's song, one that um, is, is uh, known. But this song, uh, as we will see, is actually about the Lord. It's not about Mary. Mary talks about herself a little bit, but, but only in relationship to the Lord. But, but, but as much as it's not about Mary, we should recognize the context of the song. We should recognize Mary's situation. Uh, in our Sunday school class this morning, we, we talked about uh, the, the need to remember the context of a scripture uh, before we understand its, its meaning. Right? It's very easy for us to disassociate a passage or a verse from the context, historical or uh, grammatical or uh, even within the book itself, and make it mean something that it doesn't mean. And maybe we can pull this verse out and we don't maybe feel the weight or the context of Mary. Let's just remind ourselves that Mary was a young lady. Mary was a, a young lady who, who had never known a man. She was unmarried. And she was pregnant. And at that time, in that society, the penalty thereof could have been stoning. Now, you might imagine that, that Mary, given this circumstance, uh, would have been quite anxious about her future. Fearful about the opinions of people and even terrified of the potential social consequences of what she was called into. But having heard from the angel Gabriel, which we could see earlier in this same chapter, verses 26 through 38, we find that Mary 
sings this song with complete trust in God. A God that she knew. A God that she knew some things about based on, because of what she says, based on the Old Testament scriptures. As we walk through the song, we'll see her familiarity with God's word to his people. There is a correlation between our confidence in God and our knowledge of his word. The, The less The more we know the word, the more we know him. The less of the word that we know, the less of him we know. So Mary had a measure of confidence in God because she knew this God. How did she know this God? Because she knew the scriptures. Whether she read them or she was taught them, she knew them. And she is an example to all of us in this way. A young girl who had faith in in what God was calling her into because she knew who God was. And actually, that's what this song is about. It's about Mary rehearsing and reciting what God had done. It's a song of praise and of thanksgiving for the acts of God. And she begins with with stating and, and understanding what God had done for her. Look again at verse 46. And Mary said, "'My soul magnifies the Lord.'" My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Now, these first two lines are are what's called parallelism. She's saying the same thing. When she says, my soul magnifies, my spirit rejoices, that's that's two ways of saying the same thing. She's not making a distinction between the soul and the spirit here. That's talking uh, about her inner being, her, her... uh, from, from the depths of her, she is what? She's magnifying. Again, that's where we get the word magnificant. And she's rejoicing. Similar ideas both. Who is she doing this to? The Lord. And then in the second line, in God my Savior. Right? These are paralleled ideas. Um, this language also recalls the, the prayer of Hannah in Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 2. Let, listen to the first two verses of of Hannah's prayer. And Hannah prayed and said, my heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth decries my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. We're going to see some of those things pop up throughout this psalm, this song. Mary was not merely giving lip service here, right? Some of us know the right things to say, and so we say the right things about God. Uh, We say, praise the Lord, or blessed be the Lord, or I'm rejoicing in the Lord, and we give lip service. We're saying the right words. That's not what Mary is doing here. And we understand that because she's saying, my soul and my spirit, right? Not just my lips, my soul, my inner being is praising him. It's magnifying, exalting him. Who? Directed at who? The Lord, who is, second uh, line, God my Savior. In this way, Mary is, is acknowledging two things. When she says, my Lord, uh, the Lord, and uh, God my Savior. She's acknowledging two things. The first thing is the divinity of Jesus. Right? She is equating this baby, this Lord, with God. And she's rejoicing in in, in who God is, and she's equating uh, Jesus with Lord. Mary seemed to understand that what was happening in her, 
that the baby in her, this Jesus, was in fact the Messiah. But also what Mary seems to be doing here is expressing her need of a Savior. Who is she rejoicing in? God, my Savior, my Savior. By calling Jesus God, my Savior, Mary knew her own sinfulness, her own need of a Savior. And she's recognizing her need. She's recognizing her need to trust someone other than herself. Now, there's some who think that Mary was perfect. Mary was not perfect. Mary needed a Savior. She said it herself. But Mary was chosen. She was blessed. But she, in fact, did need a Savior just like you and me. Well, Mary continues in verses 48 and 49, giving the reasons for her praise. And they're all centered on God. Look at verse 48. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he has looked, or because. We could say because he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. Mary was, was grounding her, her praise, rooting her praise in what God had done that he had looked upon her, that he had regarded her, or that he was mindful of her, or that he had shown to her something, that he had blessed her. God chose Mary. God chose Mary to be the mother of the Messiah, not because she was without sin, not at all. God recognized something in Mary, her humble estate, which she acknowledges here, but in that, she's acknowledging her own, her own unworthiness of such a blessing. And yet God did it anyways. The end of that first line, my humble estate of his servant. She calls herself a servant. We looked at that word in, in Mark's gospel. That's the word doulos. It's the word bond servant. This is humility. J.C. Ryle quotes an old saying that says, a man has just so much Christianity as he has humility. A man has just so much Christianity as he has humility. And here we see humility on display in Mary. God working in, in this woman, this woman who of a humble estate by her own words. And this is how God works, isn't it? This is what God does. He takes the, the weak. He takes the foolish. He takes the humble. The Apostle Paul writes it this way. For consider your calling, brothers. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Not many were wise... Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even those things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Mary is acknowledging that, that she's not worthy of the blessing of God. That this was something that God had chosen and in grace that he, he would use people like Mary. But in that, we also recognize that if he uses Mary, a young girl, a young nobody, we might say, that he can use you and me. Mary also rooted her worship in the character of God, his might and his holiness. Look at verse 49. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Right, the first thing she says there is, he who is mighty has done great things. She's recognizing the strength of God. Right? That, that only God could do this. 
right? Only God could take this little girl who was a virgin and choose her to be the, the mother of the Messiah without ever having known a man. Only God could do that. Only God could do the mighty works or the great things that, that she has seen and has happened in her life. God is able. God is mighty. God is powerful. But also, she ends that sentence by saying, and holy is his name. Not only did Mary recognize that the God blessed those who don't deserve it, not only did she recognize his might in her life, but also his holiness. To be holy is to be separate from sin. That's what that means. And for God to be holy, that means that he cannot have sin in his presence. Therefore, the need of someone who is righteous. But because God is holy, what we can understand, that, and because he's without sin, then that means what he does is always righteous. That that his power, that his might is actually holy power. It's holy might. This gave Mary reason for rejoicing. You can look at what God has done and know that it's good. That applies today too, you know that. That God is still mighty and God is still holy. So the great things that God does are good and they're right. And we can trust that whatever he does is good and is right. We may not always understand the works of God, but we can understand that he is mighty and that he is holy, and therefore we can trust what he does. Next, Mary speaks about what God has done for those who fear him. Verse 50, And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. So she starts out talking about what God has done for me. That's reason for praise. But also a reason for praise is what he has done for those who fear him. That he has given mercy to those. He has given compassion or, or pity to those who fear him, to those who revere him, to those who respect him, to, to worship him. Not those who live in fear of him, in, 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 uh, meaning afraid, uh, but, but in respect and in worship and in awe of him. Now, this past Wednesday in, in prayer meeting, we looked at Psalm chapter um, 112, verses uh, well, 112. If you want to look at that, um, Psalm chapter one, 112. Using a pew Bible, that's 509, 509. And we looked at this psalm. The, the very first verse says, Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly del delights in his commandments. And then we come down to verses 7 and 8. And this is talking about the righteous man. And the psalm writer says, for the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. Verse 7, he is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. I read that verse in verse 7. He is not afraid of bad news. That seemed very relevant in my life at the time. It seems like we, we are getting progressively more and more bad news. I'm not sure if you feel that way. I feel that way. And, and yet here, the psalm writer is saying he's not afraid of the bad news. That his heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. Why? Verse 1. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord. Meaning, when, when we fear the Lord rightly, we don't have to fear when things get scary. 
When things get tricky, when things don't go our way, we don't have to live in fear if we have a correct fear of God himself. Mary seems to have that fear. She seems to recognize that. And she says to all who recognize that, he gives mercy from this generation, from generation to generation. This is how God works. This is part of the the way that God works. Verses 51 through 53, Mary mentions to whom God has shown his mercy. So so yes, those who fear him, but then she she says uh, several things. One, One commentator identifies them as three groups in each of the verses. Verse 51, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. Now the first group there is the helpless. Maybe you can identify with some of these groups. People who need help. Who, people who can't do for themselves. The strength with his arm. God, God did that. The second group is in verse 52. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. So we, we see the humble are exalted. right? The helpless are, are given strength. The humble are exalted. What does that tell us? It tells us that God's in charge. Right? We, we look at a world, we see a, a power imbalance all the time. Those in charge seem that they're they're getting their way. But what God's saying is that he's actually in charge. That he's actually sovereign over all things. That he's actually the king over all governments. He, in fact, raises and puts down kings and kingdoms. He does that. You don't do that. I don't do that. No one else does that. God does that. He opposes the proud, James tells us, but gives grace to the humble. Those who fear him, he gives mercy. Who are those? The helpless who who fear him. The humble who fear him. And finally, the hungry. Verse 53, he filled the hungry with good things. And the rich he sent away empty. Those who are needy and come to God will receive what they need. In the Beatitudes, Jesus says this, Luke chapter 6, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry, now, for you shall be satisfied. Last week in the book of Mark, we mentioned that there were several paradoxes in chapter 10. Uh, Two become one. The first shall be last. Slaves shall be rulers. Uh, All all of these kind of things. Well, here we we kind of see more of the same. The, The strong are scattered. The mighty are brought down. The humble are exalted. The the, the hungry are fed and the rich are sent away. This is the nature of the kingdom of God. Mary was rightly identifying how God works among those who fear him. And it doesn't work like this world works. It works very, very differently. And for that, she is rejoicing. And finally, Mary ends by stating what God has done for Israel. He has helped, look at this is verse 54. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Mary ends by by understanding and stating God's relationship with his people Israel. She had understood what, what God has done. She was aware of his actions towards them and how he had not given up on Israel, how he had been faithful, how he remembered them, how he gave mercy to them and how he helped them. She says there in verse 55, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. 
Well, how did he speak to Abraham? Well, in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, we, we see this, what was called the Abrahamic covenant, where God promises something to Abraham and his descendants, land, seed, and blessing. This was the promise of God that he intended to keep upon their obedience. We come to, throughout the, the scriptures, the psalmist says this in chapter 98, verses 1 through 3. Pastor Chris read this earlier. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. And the psalmist is writing that before what we know would come. The salvation was yet to come in full. But we come to Matthew chapter 1 and the angel declares to Joseph that there would be a baby and his name would be Jesus who would save his people from their sin. Who's the people? The people is Israel. God indeed has remembered Israel. Warren Wearsby writes that were it not for Israel, Jesus Christ would not have been born. We, by extension, have received the gospel. Yes, we can say that Jesus died for us because he did. But without the people of Israel, without God's chosen people, Jesus would not have come. God has shown his faithfulness to the people of Israel. And Mary is delighting in that. And that character of God, his faithfulness, can be known to you and me as well. That God has been faithful to us. We may be tempted, and Israel was as well. In times of darkness, in times of doubt, in times of despair, to say, where is God? We remember in the wilderness where they say, wait, wait, I'd rather go back to Egypt. Where is this God? What, What is happening here? But like Mary, in her time of uncertainty, we must recall what God has done. That's what Mary's doing. She's rehearsing what God has done because she knew God's word. She's rehearsing his faithfulness. He has has made promises and he's kept his promises to his people. And then in faith, trust him and praise him as Mary did. Now, you may think, if you're arguing with me in your head, which some of you probably do, which is good, you may think, preacher, that sounds easier said than done. That sounds like a great plan. It sounds like good you know, theology, but in practice, that, that isn't always very easy, is it? It's not very easy to, to, to come to those conclusions when there doesn't seem like there's any hope. But what then? Well, as we turn our eyes to Jesus, as we turn our eyes to Jesus, as we turn our eyes to Christmas, we can see that God acted for us, right? That God came for us. Romans chapter eight, verse 20, 31 says this, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And then he says this in verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? What's being said there? It's saying, look at Jesus. And if God was willing to do that, you can count on him. He is faithful. 
You, you, you and I are worried about small things. He gave up his son to ensure your eternal life. He's worthy of our trusts. He's worthy of our praise. He's worthy of our rejoicing. May we not forget what God has done. So in the times of uncertainty, in the times of darkness and despair and doubt, what do we do? We trust what we know. We trust what we know in the light, even when we can't see it in the dark. And what we know is that this God so loved us that he sent his son. And this morning as we come to the table, we see again this one who not only came, he did that, Christmas, but whenever we think about Christmas, we, we, we don't disconnect Christmas from Easter. As we don't disconnect Easter from Christmas. The reason that he came, he didn't just come as a baby, he also came to die as our Savior. There is hope. Father, we once again say thank you. Thank you for your son. Thank you for the, the kindness that he has shown to us, the grace that he has extended to us who are unworthy, sinners in need of what only he could do. And Father, because you loved us, you sent him. May we not soon forget what you have done. May it be cause for rejoicing as it was, as the works of God were for Mary. May this work and the many other works that we could recount this morning that you have done in our life to those who fear you, may they cause us to rejoice today. Rejoice this week. Rejoice in the good times. Rejoice in the bad times. We recognize it is your will for us to give thanks in all circumstances. Not for, but in. Would you help us to do that this week? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.